0: This week, I joined Tommy Sammons on his Year Zero podcast over at the Libertarian Institute. We covered the gamut and got to some deeper thinking on everything from culture to philosophy to religion, to the World Economic Forum and the morphing dialectic over the past century. And we did it all in just 90 minutes. This team up was long overdue. So without further ado, I'm Monica Perez, and we're going on a buddy dive.
1: All right. I am here with Miss Monica Perez. How are you doing, ma'am?
0: I'm great. It's so great to see you.
1: It's great to see you. I've been wanting to have you on my show since the first time I heard you on Pete's show, and I just never got around to asking you until recently, and I feel like a dick for it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. It's great. I I love... uh, Pete's turned me on to a lot of people, and you're a lot warmer and fuzzier than pete who i love Pete but- <laughs> 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 usually scares me within the first two minutes so. he <laughs> keeps me on my toes he's a new yorker too
1: i love pete pete's such hey a good too. dude he is such a guy, good guy i just finally got to meet him in person too for the first time we we've known each other probably five years uh via twitter and facebook and all that and then being at the Libertarian Institute together. And so, but I just recently met him at Childeberg for the first time in person. And it was amazing. I, I really enjoyed it.
0: I missed Childerberg this year. I can't believe he was there. Yeah. Dang it. Yeah.
1: And I was I was That's there last year. Were you there last
0: year? I was there last year, but I, I was kind of keeping a low profile. I had the uh, elusive Mr. Perez with me.
1: So oh, we
0: were, okay. we just did some flights of whiskey and then.
1: Ah, uh, okay. Because I didn't see you last year when I was there.
0: Yeah, I was. But there. I
1: do slightly remember somebody saying that you were there at some point.
0: Yeah, well, I was a little worried about killing people's buzz because I wasn't uh, nah. wasn't as chilled. as
1: <laughs> <Nah. laughs> a lot Everybody of the other people chilled. after
0: the sun went down.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, you're gonna have to definitely come next year.
0: Definitely, yeah. happy to.
1: That's that's my vacation every year from now on. My wife made me promise that we'd never miss another Childeberg so like,
0: Excellent, okay. nice. Yeah. My yeah. husband was very impressed because he was like. Wow, like all these people are totally normal. They're not wearing masks. Like everybody's <laughs> like you. And I was like, Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> people who can think. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Sometimes sometimes we can think. We're
0: way ahead of that. Depends on, on how that. much
1: how much we've had to drink that day. But well
0: yeah. that was the thing when the sun went down. I was like, all right, I think I think they've had enough of the yeah Yeah, show. and see that yeah.
1: <laughs> I I I ended up I ended up taking like three handfuls of shrooms that year too.
0: That's so, what I was thinking. That's yeah. what I figured everybody was like, I don't, I don't. Yeah.
1: Well, it it was, it was because I had a, a very down experience the time before. And like, I was like, oh, these things don't even affect me anymore because I hadn't taken shrooms in years and somebody had brought me like nine caps and me and my wife split them and I got nothing out of it. Like nothing.
0: Oh, like, they were probably old
1: yeah and the the colors got bright, and that was it, and I was just kind of like okay, like whatever, and so like last year, I just it was like three handfuls i was it looked like I was starving like a homeless person <laughs> like
0: <laughs> you're eating as food, but how can you do that when there's like a bunch of people you don't know around
1: like well never- well what we well I had my dogs with me I, like you you probably saw my me and my wife walking around with two big ass pit bulls and I had my dogs with me and we just went and sat in the woods and just ate shrooms and we were like kind of at the edge of the camp. Yeah, But we were, work. Yeah, and we, I just sat there and laughed for six hours and then I was like, okay, I'm tired of laughing. We need to go to bed and so we took that, you know, that 20-yard, five-hour march back to the campsite <laughs> and, so, <laughs> you know. But, yeah. I feel
0: like I could use some of that because it's i'm I'm really trying to crack the code on maybe not even so much what's going on in the world, but what I feel like there's a moment of clarity. I'm just on the precipice of to like what's the answer? Like what either don't worry <laughs> or do this? And I feel like a little instant a uh, uh, little instant clarification, clear vision like that just cut out all the bullshit in the kind of front of your brain.
1: Right. Yeah. And
0: I could find you know, I mean really, I might have to because I know I'm, I am I just know that I'm missing something. I'm I, missing I, the answer.
1: I told Pete and I think it was February of 2020 or March. It might have been March. It was it was right around like the beginning of COVID and I I texted him and I was just like this feels like revelation. Like, I'm not even a religious person, but there was just something so sinister about what was happening. And I don't see how anybody has gone through the last two years without seeing the the spiritual connection. And again, I'm not even a religious person. I consider myself agnostic, but at the same time, I'm I'm at least aware enough to go, okay, I kind of get what we were being warned about for 2,000 years.
0: Yeah. And, and, you know, even if it's not like a malevolence or an evil, which I was kind of feeling, even if it's just the complete absence of morality, cause they're, they're, People were dying. Like It was ruining people's lives. It was really destroying society and human beings without mm-hmm. any regard for them as anything. I mean, treated worse than animals, really, I feel like, by the people who were making these policy decisions. Right. And even if they weren't bringing to it a, an evil purpose, the, the absolute absence of morality is in itself really chilling and, mm. and really just demonstrates to me that, that we have like you and I have a moral imperative, like a fundamental uh, spiritual side of conscience that at the very least is just absent in, in these people who are either making decisions or which I consider to be worse following blindly.
1: Right. Yeah.
0: You know, at policy level, I, like well, regular I, people, I don't know, but the but policy, like all these like bureaucrats and stuff would just went along. Ugh.
1: Well, I, I have a, I don't know. I've always kind of had this thing for, for um, evil. Um, Like um, just this, this curiosity about it. So like I I grew up and I was, I was reading a lot of, a lot of Clive Barker, a lot of Edgar Allan Poe, you know, a lot of horror, like uh, Robert McCammon. I always liked Robert McCammon a lot. Um, Clive Barker is by far my favorite fiction author. And it kind of turned me on to like serial killers and kind of like wanting to look into like what they are. So like I'll get into these modes where I'm, I'm tired of looking at politics. So I'll start watching wildlife documentaries and serial killer like documentaries. And one of the serial killers I've found that's like the most intriguing to me is Israel keys. And uh, I just found a series on him, and it's, it's this uh, podcast series where this guy does like five seasons on Israel keys. And I never like, even heard of him. Okay, so well, this guy was active in the late 90s early 2000s. He's about my age. He's he well, not is. He killed himself. He's no longer my age. But he would have been I think he would have been about 44 nowadays. Like 43, 44 years old. Um he he would he got arrested in Lufkin, Texas after murdering uh abducting a girl out of a little coffee stand. In Anchorage, Alaska, uh, where he lived and killing her. But what he was really known for is traveling around the United States, having these murder kits buried all over the United States and killing people in rural areas. And they don't know how many people he killed. He's admitted to 11, but that's based upon the information that the FBI had, which is all the information that on a computer that was less than a year and a half old. So you're, I mean, it could have been any number of people because when you really started looking into like what he's like researched and what he's into and the way he talks about things, he, um he had searched over 13,000 missing persons in, in less than a year and a half. So it's who knows how many of those people he's responsible for. You know, he was keeping tabs on the people that he was responsible for in a lot of situations. But the thing that made him so wild was he wasn't just a serial killer. He was a serial killer that killed in streaks of three. So let's say he killed somebody on February 15th. Within the next couple of weeks, he's going to kill somebody else. And within the next couple of weeks, he's going to kill somebody else. And then he's going to go rob a bank. Then he's going to go set something on fire. <laughs> like that he had this kind of like crazy pattern to him that and he, he did this for like 14 years. He got away with it. And
0: you don't think that sometimes I think with the serial killers that the FBI or whatever just wants to clear cold cases and they'll attribute like really disparate different crimes to one person.
1: Well, the funny thing is I've only attributed one crime to him that he hasn't admit. He didn't admit Oh. Uh, they only attributed one to him and that's because every other crime in the region in the in the time frame he was there like was yeah. solved except for this one yeah. and this was like okay this is yeah. his MO and so no um they they actually have been very reclusive about even talking about him they they won't even talk about him which is which is really interesting but um, Did you get
0: like an insight into him that makes you understand the evil? Well, what I was people? gonna
1: say, what I was gonna say was what I notice is whenever I'm looking at these serial killers, and I, I thought of him specifically, um, because they obviously this these are the most evil people alive. Like these these people are just the worst of the worst. They do some of the worst, most heinous things you could ever imagine, and they fantasize about doing even worse things to people than, than you could even fathom. And one of the things he always talked about was, was raping and, and murdering people inside a church and burning down churches. He had a real, and and his parents were very religious and he came from a very religious background, but he was like really like turned off to that lifestyle. And, and when I see the way that religion is attacked nowadays it it brings that back home i i I kind of draw this kind of parallel like it's like why would you attack religion so much like if it means so little to you, then why did why are you letting it control so much of your narrative
0: i I was thinking about religion I remember growing up, and I have eight older brothers and sisters, and my parents were religious we were brought up. Religious, and uh, as the kids got older, who were basically raising me like surrogate parents, uh, I remember one of my sisters who was very scientifically minded. She said, "Well, look at all the look at all the evil that's done in the name of religion." And I was young, and I was like, "Yeah, wow, okay." So I looked at that, and I could definitely see how people exploited religion, manipulated people, would lie about it. And then as I got older, much older. I started to realize that that this, um, I, I think uh, religion can, I think half, maybe half the people in the world uh, say that they're a part of one of the big religions. And I associated that with two things, really. You have this idea of behaving yourself and this idea of taking care of people who can't take care of themselves. So mm-hmm. laws and welfare, basically. And as an as an anarcho-capitalist, or I guess a, a philosophical agorist, I think of myself more now, I this idea of having a self-ordering society really goes to, well, what are people really like? What are What is society really like? And I think mm. that the religions, organized religions, are as close to a self-ordering society that you could have. There are rules and there are expectations, and I, I can't think of any... Religion that's right now where the head of that religion sends out an army. I mean, I, you know, you hear things about Islam, but I just don't know because there's so much disinformation too about what's going on with that. So I I just don't, I'm not familiar enough with it, but like the Pope can't, they can guilt you and they can excommunicate you, but he can't do that yet. Look at all the people who give money, whether they're smart to do it or not, to who behave, who go to confession, like who do all these things in the name of some higher purpose and i and i feel like in the final analysis it's it's and good and the reason that it's so exploited is because it's it it does touch people like people are so vulnerable to it because there's something real and true about it
1: Mm, yeah yeah and and i'm kind of the same way i've always told my wife like and It's the reason I've kind of clung on to agnostic and not going like atheist, is because it's like don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's something here that people have been hanging on to for the last two thousand years for a reason, and so I'm I, not ready to just yeah. say, oh, well, to hell with all of it. You know, <laughs> like, well,
0: just- I think agnosticism is the only rational position, right? I, I I'm a practicing Catholic, but I'm I, I know like people give me a hard time. I have to admit, I can't. It's very hard for me to imagine uh, being able to remember my name when my brain is rotting in a box in the ground. Like, it's just like really hard for me to figure that out. And I certainly couldn't prove it to anybody. Hmm. So I feel like agnosticism is the rational point of view. Atheism, I don't understand. How can you be absolutely positive there's... Like not God, but you really, I haven't heard any really good explanation of why we're here, how we got here, what's the nature of the universe, what's outside the universe, where it came from. Nobody really has a good explanation for that. So to say that you are absolutely positive, it's anything but, you know, a a fifth dimensional superpower. I mean, that's gotta be among the options.
1: Right. Yeah. And I I, I think uh, even if you're not going to be involved in worship and, and adherence to any religion there's something to be said for having a healthy respect for it and for the wisdom that that's being passed and the
0: culture that it imparts has real value like even yes. just think about sex right so it's a moral thing and once they did birth control uh my my sisters and brothers were like yeah i don't it's unrealistic to think that somebody's not going to have premarital sex whatever just like be prepared and I got whatever modern training there would be in mm. that regard. And but if you think about it there's just so many problems that really hurt people so like having children outside of wedlock like I've known people who've had abortions, I've known people who've given up children to adoption, I know people who've raised them single, I know people who've raised unwanted kids. I'd got, you know, kind of shotgun wedding kind of thing and none of those scenarios is ideal for those kids and it's hard enough to raise kids in an environment where the parents like have a really great relationship and home life and it's very difficult to raise kids so that they're happy not even like raise kids to be what i want but raise kids to be like functional Mm. and to resist the allure of TikTok and you know video games or whatever it's really hard so you have that you have the harvey weinstein thing you have the me too stuff you have um you you know you just have all these situations where it's confusing and dangerous uh to not at least have a healthy Mm. sense of of like the sex drives kind of dangerous. Like it can be dangerous to women. How, how much more sexual men can be and how much stronger they are and all that. And religion, like, um, whether it's, it really was rules handed down from God, or it's just this morality that emerged for not for 2000 years, but for 10,000 years from human society. And you just call it God or whatever it's, it is definitely practical and, and even like disease and stuff or, uh, child molestation and all these things that happen because you know maybe people just let their guard down about what a powerful force that is
1: i just made me think that it it was it was really funny whenever that um supreme court uh decision was leaked and you started seeing all these progressives come out and say well (laughs) if the christians are going to ban abortion we're going to quit having sex with them and i was like yeah (laughs) your abstinence is really going to show those damn Christians." (laughs)
0: that is so true but it's the hands off my body or your bands off my body or whatever in the age of rabid uh, force vaxxers like that is just over the top i mean over the top
1: i got in an argument with one chick one time and i was just trolling her i wasn't even being serious i was just trolling her just to do it because yeah, kept, you didn't even
0: care. Really. Yeah.
1: I kept seeing that she kept getting more upset every time somebody commented and I was just like, okay, this is fun. And so I, I told her something about, well, like, um, we, we, we should either outlaw abortion or she, we should allow abortion up until the frontal cortex is completely developed. One of the two, there's no in, in between. And, and she was like, <laughs> and she, Is that uh, like
0: age twenty five? Yeah,
1: it's like twenty five <laughs> years old. That gives that gives the parents uh, time to like correct mistakes. You know,
0: <laughs> see how it turns out. <laughs> yeah. Wait, wait, Money wait, wait, wait. Okay,
1: okay, okay. After twenty <laughs> years of this bullshit, <laughs> right.
0: this has been a horrible mistake. <laughs> I actually, I, I've always been a little more inclined to tolerate the infanticide. People are like, oh, you must really hate infanticide. I'm like, at least it's honest.
1: Yeah. You know, at yep. least
0: it's honest. And I look back uh, and Roe versus Wade is bad law. But as it's just not a constitutional issue, it's definitely yeah, a state it, issue. It's just
1: stupid. It's just it, bad law. So
0: <laughs> regardless of what I think if, as a person who doesn't believe in government, basically, I certainly don't believe in uh you know, the way I think about abortion is like you'd have to to really ban it, outlaw well, it.
1: Well, the biggest problem the pr- biggest problem with government is the monopoly on violence. And in- giving women the you know an exception to the monopoly on violence and allowing them to commit violent atrocities against a, a living creature is not it's not a good balance that's not
0: the right exception <laughs> yeah to right it's like <laughs> uh,
1: it's like all right well i don't know if we're going in the right direction here we're just creating more violence and i'm not sure well, that that's-, that's the the key That's just
0: that illogic that comes from, and you can see that with all the Vax stuff and the COVID stuff is that there's a a fundamental, they just want to use any ideology they can come up with. They act like there are principles, but they just want policy. They want policies to reduce population. So they'll like, they'll ratchet in whatever they have to. It's just like the out here, LA, there's a lot of just communist youth. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There's just communist youth who, are adamant about vaccine mandates. I'm like, okay, are you a communist or are you a shill for Big Pharma? Like, let's get the ideology right. <laughs> you know, like let's just figure it out. But they, they, so, so that's why I think that these kids have to be constantly um, tapped into by TikTok, which is like every three seconds they literally, I feel like they tell them how to think. They tell mm. them the the tidbits of how to think about a particular issue at a particular time to the point where. You can't even I mean, because my kids go to school and I hear some of this reports back that you can't have a like an intelligent conversation with these kids on any issue that's emerging because they don't know yet how they're supposed to think about it. So anything that feels like contradictory, they'll laugh or make fun of you. And it, it reminds me of my father when he was teaching me a value system. He said, you really have to understand the difference between right or wrong and wrong. You really have to understand it deeply because you're going to have to make decisions on the fly. And if you don't know the difference between right and wrong, you're going to have to try to examine every single solitary situation from beginning to end. And you might be in a pickle. You might mm-hmm. not be able to get, and and he was right. And really it all comes down to don't steal and don't kill, I think. Right. I mean, my mom well, says it's all ten commandments, but I feel like those are pretty much eighty percent of it.
1: Yeah, right. <laughs> well, getting back to that story of that chick I was trolling, she had she was she had gone the direction that, that you said your brother and sister had gone, where they were where she was like, um, well, expecting someone not to have sex in, in modern in modern times is just unrealistic. And I was like, well, stick to <laughs> you don't have to worry about an abortion. <laughs> And she found that the most disgusting thing she'd ever heard in her life. And I was just like, well, I mean, what? Well, it <laughs> I used like... to be
0: I, I think oral used to be shocking too. My brother, so my my brothers and sisters are way older than I am, a lot of them. And mm-hmm. one of them was in uh was in Thailand during Vietnam. So he's um he was in high school in the 60s. Mm. And he said that girls just did not do that. Like, that was just not something that you would expect a woman to do, oh, is get, you know, give you oral sex. Like, he was just like, that was just something it wasn't even thought about, wasn't even considered. Yeah. So these things are generated into the society, you know, that that this she thought that that was a horrible thing to think or say. But I mean, if 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 that's what the powers that be decided to make trendy, I mean, think about this stuff like how did they figure out the transgender thing? As opposed to women's rights and girls' rights, I mean, there's a real conflict there when you mm. have transgender female athletes. You have to decide which uh, oppressed person, it was oppressed group, you're going to champion.
1: Right. And they so guess, just decide. I, I call it. I just say it's a eugenics movement. That's what it seems like to me. You know. It, yeah. To not, just see- yeah just, sex everybody well no i mean remember back i mean i know you do, i know you know this but back in what like the 20s they were you know um uh, castrating people they were making them uh impotent they uh they were they were giving them all these uh surgeries and medications to keep them from having children and all this stuff and this is just a way to convince parents to convince their to do it to their own children without the state mandating it you know yes
0: and and they did they did tell them how to think about it and i think that that's why i think that it's extremely polarizing so you have the people on the one side it reminds me of a pen and teller where they were they were tricking people into this elaborate recycling thing and they mm-hmm. had like 10 or 15 different and people some people would just continue to accept like 15 different categories of trash and spend their time doing that there are people <laughs> like okay We've decided that you're, we used to be in favor of girls sports uh, or the WNBA, but now we want the WNBA to allow transgender athletes, right? So like that's going to happen probably, mm. or you kind of have to let that happen. That's what that, the one side says, but it's so extreme then that they're going to get that. I think this is an extension of Trump having brought identity politics to the right is that they are they are going to get the right then who really the vast majority of people maybe republican voters say really just are about taxes or less interference no obamacare stuff like that finally they're going to have to get off the couch and say okay now i have to get politically active because you've got guys in the locker room with my daughter and you're trying to tell her that um You know, gender affirmation surgery might be something she wants to consider, which is like a sex change operation. That's what Mm -hmm. they call it now. And I just I feel like it's getting so extreme that now you're getting you're going to radicalize a right. That there was plenty of room in the middle until. Things got so extreme and it got so extreme because you could get people and I'm going to just say on the left for this issue, you could get people on the left to go to that extreme Mm -hmm. because they're just not thinking anymore.
1: Yeah. The way I said it on Twitter was in in the 20s, they used to force um, mentally ill to um, to be become sterilized. And now they convince the mentally ill to sterilize their children.
0: Yeah. You know, that's that's yeah. Can you fold that into the vax thing in that it's really a puzzle that baffles so many of us that if the vaccines are bad for you, and it certainly seems like they
1: are, I mean, it, it does really- seem like they are. It, it it was like I never I never spent a lot of time looking at the vaccines. Number one, I'm not a scientist, so a lot of the jargon around it didn't yeah. make any sense. It's to literally me. written I, in green. I was just like, what the <laughs> fuck are you even talking yeah. about? And so it, it, it got to be very confusing to me the way they were, were writing it and the way that the, the, the information was coming out. So I didn't spend a whole lot of time with that, but I guarantee you, I mean, it fits right in, you know, to, to the entire eugenics movement and, Yeah, but, but, and but they... the self-sabotage that they've convinced. I mean, if you take eugenics and you mix Edward Bernays into the mix, like, <laughs> yeah you can come up with a better idea than uh, like half of the United States is now gay or trans, you know? Yeah. Uh, and the
0: other, and I think the vaccines do have a reproductive element too. If I, I do. I do too. But like yeah. I said,
1: it's just very hard for me. Yeah, to, It's hard
0: to get through it, but I would just right. wonder, I, I mean, I think the answer is probably my question is it's a self-selected group of people who accept the vaccine. And we'll like boost and all of that. A self-selected group that is probably the most obedient. Yeah, the they're the same people that want to take your guns and
1: party. send them to Ukraine, too.
0: Yeah. But, but, but if those people are the ones who are being sterilized, see, like think of the people who are getting sterilized. It's not it, it's not the upstarts, not the rebels, not the people who resist. It's kind of weird. I mean, I, I yeah. guess I figure that they just don't think that anybody's a threat.
1: Yeah. Or maybe uh, they it,
0: like the rebels.
1: No, I well no, I don't think so. I, I, I actually talked to Michael Rechtenwald about this on an episode a while back. Because I was like, I was trying to figure out like why would why would people want to kill the people that are most obedient and and leave those that are most independent and and most rebellious. And I think What we basically determined is because the people that are rebellious and are doers. They still need products. They still need services. They still need stuff. Even depopulating the earth, they still need things done. Yeah, for sure. And so they want to keep the people that are going to do those things. It may be. I guarantee you've read The Next Million Years by Charles Galton Darwin. I don't think so. Oh God, you gotta read that book. Okay, so there's there's a there's a section in there where he's talking about I, I quote this quite often actually, and so people are gonna get tired of me saying it. Yeah, I know. But what he, you're he he's talking about how humans are wild animals. And you're not going to tame the human. That's not what your goal is. Your goal is to create the atmosphere to make the human move you're not going to direct the human and tame them and train them to move a certain way. So what you do is you create a environment in which they have no choice, but to move a specific way.
0: Well, that's definitely what they've done. I mm. guess I was starting to think I had read, read against the grain by James Scott, and he got me kind of convinced that human beings had been domesticated. That ten thousand years ago, this that like writing emerged as a way to keep track of taxes. That grain, like wheat, the movement towards that kind of harvest as a way to get everything to ripen at once and take that surplus that that can be stored. Uh, So that you could have a a monumental slave state or whatever. And, and that, and I started to think of us as having been domesticated, but, but what you're saying, it makes so much more sense. I mean, they just, we're just in a maze more or less where we just don't even, it's kind of like 3d stovepiping, piping, whatever, Mm -hmm. like you're just forced to go where yeah, because you, that you're is you're only true. left it's, like
1: one path, like it's everything, like Zappa. all the walls start closing in on you. There's only yeah. one way to go, so you just start du- going that direction. It's like yeah. herding cattle,
0: or like what Zappa said. About it's actually the more like
1: herding cats, but
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah, herding cattle you can do. But like the Zappa thing with the with the curtains, he said, you pull back the curtains in the theater and you see that there's just a brick wall, right? But there's there, it isn't like an exit, it isn't a lobby, it's nothing, it's just a brick wall. Right. You're not going that way, right? And you just didn't even know it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And so I, I kind of think Charles Galton Darwin was onto the, onto something when he wrote this book. And I think it was 1946. He wrote this book It's called the next million years. You got to check it out. It's not a very yeah. long book. It's very, it's very intense though. So you'll, you'd like it.
0: I'm curious about the next million years, to be honest. I'm really, I I just can't see past the end of my nose right now because, I mean, maybe it's done. Maybe they'll give us the recession. Maybe it'll be, uh, you know, just another phase, like another world war. But I do wonder with all the surveillance and the digital currency and all that stuff.
1: Well, I want to ask you about some of this stuff because like something stuck out to me whenever I started. I was reading through the uh, promotional articles they were writing for the wef Mm -hmm. and i noticed something and i haven't heard anyone else talk about it and i'm like why is nobody else talking about this so let me read this to you so the one thing that that we've heard for the majority of our life is that we live in a unipolar world and there's this new world order that's that's operating and it's operating in a way in which Western society is kind of controlling the operations. Okay. So, in, in the WEF, what's this year's meeting about? The meeting is centered around the theme, History at a Turning Point Government Policies and Business Strategies. It happens at the most consequential geopolitical and geoeconomic moment of the past three decades and against the backdrop of a once in a century pandemic. The war in Ukraine and the resulting tragedy calls for global moral action. Leaders will address urgent humanitarian and security challenges as they simultaneously advance longstanding economic, environmental, and societal priorities, all while reinforcing the foundations of a global system. Clarity of vision and unity of purpose will be crucial for making progress against the unprecedented complexity of a multipolar world. And they just slip that in there and nobody's talking about it has been announced. We live in a multipolar world now. It's been announced. It's out there. There's nothing we can do about it.
0: The this is very interesting because when they said three decades, that's when the Berlin Wall fell. Like this, right. they are bringing back the Cold War. Oh They're my God! I read. When did I back.
1: read? Oh, oh, I read something a while back, and it was um, when the Berlin Wall came down in ni- 89, right? mm, 88, eighty nine, right? 89, 91. 90, 90, okay, 90, 90. well they were. I, mean, I talking remember.
0: About oh right, yeah, the your, Berlin Wall, but the reunification was in ninety.
1: Okay, so but it was yeah. 89 when the wall 80. actually came down right yeah uh, I was reading something and they kept talking about the spirit of 1989 and I was like, that seems weird like I've always heard the spirit of 1776 like, <laughs> you know but yeah. I've never heard anybody talk about the spirit of 1989 what are they talking about I started googling it and that's what they're talking about They're talking yeah. about like they were talking about the uh, creating America like re reinvigorating the the spirit of europe in america and so the spirit of 1989 europe in america today and that that's what their whole purpose was and it got me like thinking i've actually like i got a series of articles i really need to start writing them uh because i just like sat down and i just started doing research on this and trying to figure out where it was going to go oh, it's going to be insane. It's going to take me years to write this. And I don't know if I want to do it. <laughs> well,
0: let me react to that. And then I want to know your reactions, to my reaction, hmm. which is when I think of that 1989 moment and retrospect, uh, it was... It was very exciting for us. I remember I had was with a German person when they the reunification was announced and people were really celebrating. But for me, I now that I think back, I feel like that was a a moment of uh, like the flashpoint of a renewed like neo mercantilism. Like they just saw Eastern Europe as a, a huge new market. I mean, could you imagine if all of a sudden, uh, however many hundreds of millions probably of Europeans had not you know had to buy everything, <laughs> you know, like the first mm-hmm. day of school <laughs> just had to go buy everything right and and you could just see and their wages were low, so you could even put factories in there and it's kind of like the whole probably East Asia after Vietnam and stuff. I always think of that just opening up these markets for both labor and consumer products, and I feel like that. These past, I think they made this decision about the bipolar, multipolar world just recently. Like I think they were provoking this thing with Russia. I think they had decided that when you open up that mercantilist, um, you know, Pandora's box, you get not only the consumers, but you also get producers. So Mm -hmm. if you're if they're going to all of a sudden, if they have resources and they have factories like Russia and China combined would, then you you may actually be competing with them then for the consumer and not be able to keep prices too high or whatever. And I think they may have decided that it just wasn't worth, um, uh, you know, that Russia and China had gotten too big to really um, be, uh, you know, kind of
1: yeah, play they, the role they of under, a They underestimated Russia for sure. And that, or, that's, that's or they really... wanted to
0: just, exploited for a limited amount of time and then I think if you're saying it's coming here, I'm saying I think that what we're that South America is this neo mercantilist opportunity right now.
1: Mm. Well, uh, let me start with the Russia thing. okay. I think when they declared economic war on Russia, thinking that they could just break Russia through sanctions and and these ESG business practices, um, that when Russia reacted, by stating that if you want to buy natural gas from them, you have to use rubles, that caught everyone off guard. I, I don't think anybody expected that, and I don't think anybody expected the ruble to become the, the the standard, which which it has. I mean, it's like the strongest currency in the world right now, and well, and I think that really fucked them up. I really, I really do. I think that was one of those things that were like, oh shit, like. Our plan just backfired, like like wily e. Coyote running off the cliff or something. You know, like it's you know what
0: like- I think a a tremendous amount of strength for Russia has been, and I've never heard anybody mention this, but mm. I believe they went bankrupt. I think they def, I know they defaulted on their debt. Mm. I was it, I, I can't remember what year it was. Was it in the nineties or in the aughts? But they defaulted on their debt. There was that book, The Smartest Guys in the Room. It caused that whole cascade of bankruptcies and stuff on Wall mm-hmm. Street, if I recall correctly. And since then, they had mm-hmm. you know bad credit. So they have, well, whereas we and the rest of the world seem to be having like greater than 100% debt. Now it's much greater, I'm sure.
1: Mm-hmm. Debt
0: to GDP ratio, they had a fraction of that. I think at, when I first started following, it, it was like 13%. And I'm sure it's more than that now, but I always thought... Boy, could you, if you were trying to hurt somebody, telling them that they can't incur national debt is not the way to do it. Right. And I could see that as having been, it gives them the possibility of absorbing low oil prices and not to mention low oil prices is what hurts Russia. That is not what we have right now.
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so I think that was a, I think, I think their entire economic strategy against Russia just backfired. I, I I really don't think they saw it coming. And I, I think they really miscalculated whenever it came to the economic warfare on that. Um, as far as 1989, I mean, I don't remember much about that. I was nine years old. I, like, I didn't care. <laughs> like, I remember that it was a big deal that the Berlin Wall fell. and I was No, I had like, a job. Oh, yeah. Yeah,
0: I had a job.
1: I, oh, I didn't. I, I mean, other than... Being a nine-year-old, that was
0: wreaking <laughs> havoc.
1: <laughs>
0: you know. Catching salamanders.
1: Yeah, I was wreaking havoc uh, for my parents to who were working. <laughs> my parents were working. My mom was working, what, probably 50, 60 hours a week as uh, uh, doing a uh, workman's comp. And my dad was working two or three jobs at the time. And uh, we didn't have a lot of food. So I, I don't think... Like my mom at this point in time, you know, at 89, 90, my mom would go two or three days without eating just to make sure we all ate instead of, you know, I so, believe it. yeah. So it was, uh, it wasn't like, at the top of my list, worrying about the Berlin yes. Wall. You know? Yes, so. of
0: course. Yes, I mean it is funny that we care about national politics, geopolitics. We're supposed to care about people that we've never met who get shot, but not care about people we've never met who are you know tortured by one yeah. of our allies yeah, somewhere. Exactly. Like it's just so ridiculous that and and we and we're supposed to manufacture these emotions and we care so little we don't even know the people we live near. We don't right. even know of them. It's kind of like a, it's but a think, weird distraction. I think what they're
1: doing, like, I, I really think what they're doing, and, and I watched this, like, this ESG strategy. I, I know you know what ESG yeah. is. I don't think I have to explain that to you. Okay, so part of the strategy is that here, all right, so so in the past, I just, re- actually, I just wrote an article on this, and I, I'm going to submit it to the Institute. But in the past, it business-friendly states were the most successful, right? Right? So, if you had low regulations, low taxes, businesses wanted to come to your state and operate. But here recently, S&P Global just put uh, ESG ratings on states themselves, all right? So, now, like, businesses are going to be strong-armed out of specific states that aren't measuring up to the ESG standards, right? So, basically, what they're doing is they're creating an atmosphere that – the the least business-friendly states are setting the agenda for everyone, right? And so I use this example in the article I wrote, and I was like, let's say Hungary has the strictest ESG standards in the world. Well, it's hard to believe that all the corporations, the multinational corporations and businesses are going to change their their initiatives because Hungary has this these ESG standards, but we live in a world of virtue signaling and no one needs to wants to be outdone. So if Hungary makes these these moves, then what's to stop Britain, Spain and France from joining them? Now, losing Hungary, Hungarian business may not be a big deal, but losing Hungarian, French, British and Spanish business, that'll make you move. Right. And so you're going to have like states like Texas or South Dakota or or Florida that are usually really business friendly states losing these corporations unless they and, and losing the business, losing the product, losing the commerce, unless they adhere to the standards of these European allies that are putting forth stricter ESG standards.
0: They actually address that overtly in this council formulations relations document called, uh, North American union that mm-hmm. William Weld wrote and Heidi Cruz signed off on among like a couple of dozen other people. And they talked overtly about that saying that we'd have a North American union, which I always thought Ted Cruz would be the president of because he's Mexican and he was born in Canada. So, uh, <laughs> That's he, actually
1: not a bad yeah, logic behind it. Yeah. I really
0: think that's going to happen or whatever. If it's going it to, and it's Heidi Cruz's thing. Mm-hmm. So they said that they wanted they would have like labor and environmental standards which goes right with that to the highest the most restrictive. So whoever they would merge the three countries for all intents and purposes and the laws would uh regulate would normalize to the most uh, restrictive one and that in order to get the legislatures of the three countries to be able to do that smoothly they would establish a group and literally says in it, like the Bilderberg Group, that can tell the legislature its legislators how to get on the same page there. So what you're talking about is something that they... Are they have already said expressly that they would do how they would do it by having backdoor channels to legislators? And uh, I also think that there's, um, you know, maybe two other things that could happen. One is you could have tax issues. So that's why they want the taxes to be at the highest possible level because you Mm. could have the Florida and Texas. Um, take the taxes away. You take taxes away and corporations will come and pay for your people to be educated. You don't even need to pay for higher education. They Mm -hmm. will come and they will send your people to school to do what they need them to do. And so you could absolutely work outside that system if it were allowed. But I think there's also something that just has been bugging me. This guy who wrote The American Next American Civil War, Steve Marsh, I thought they are setting us up for a civil war, clearly. And uh, but when um, but when push comes to shove, it might just be secession thereafter. That was what he said. Somebody asked him, "Like, do you really think there's going to be a civil war?" He said, "I think it's more likely that we'll have secession." And I just thought that was crazy, but kind of in keeping with this, I think this turning point that you were talking about, like a multipolar world. If what they're saying is, well, we can't have global control. So what we'll do is divide and conquer or just Mm. break it all up and make it. Once you have like that surveillance state and everything kind of normalized, you can really control it all in what appears to be a local way. And, and it's really not, you know, like if you'll go to Australia or England, they, I remember seeing in both of those places, Court cases that were very similar to what we're having right now, like um gay marriage mm. on the courthouse steps, or like a baker not wanting to bake a cake for a gay marriage like in mm. these other countries, so you think it's totally a local issue, but if they have control of the media and everything, I think it's like an illusion, like you were saying before about they 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 set you up in these cages that you think you're operating freely in, but there are no you know, there's another only one of the doors opens.
1: Another WEF friend of ours has written about this. Um, have you read any Parag Khanna? I've talked about him quite a few times.
0: Yes, I have not, but I've heard of him.
1: Okay. So he wrote he wrote an essay. I'll send it to you. it's called um it's called uh it? destroying empires through devolution. Right. And so he's using the idea, he's saying, uh in the in the modern day with with movements like Texit and Brexit and all these decentralized movements, how do we continue to maneuver as a uh, globally? And so what he's saying is what you want to do is you want to allow the people locally that are, are moving or pulling for this decentralization to believe that they've separated successfully. So how do you do that? You allow them their own culture. All right. So you leave their culture alone. You let them have their culture and you go in and you buy their politicians and their businesses and you run their businesses through, through through the corporate structure and i have a actually i have quite a few of his books i have 3 of them right here next to me um so this one i just showed you is connectography and what he's saying is he's saying that the 21st century is that whereas the 20th, 20th century was divided by by borders and, and militaries were initiated to protect borders in the 21st century. Militaries are no longer initiated to protect borders. They're initiated to protect supply chains, right? So what you want to look at, if you want to understand the, the global structure of the 21st century, you look at the map minus the borders and then you draw across the map, the, the infrastructure, which is the skeleton and the, um, and then the the communications networks, which is the neurological system, right? Wow. That's and so brilliant. so he's he's I mean, what it's like 450 pages of him yeah. drawing out how to do this and how to how to view the 21st century. I think a big issue that a lot of us fall into is we are fighting a 20th century battle in a 21st century world, and we're looking at the old way of doing things. And so we're focused still on the, I I even think Russia made this mistake. This is one of the mistakes I think Russia made is they're fighting a 20th century war, war in the 21st century world. And I don't know. Well, in Dugan, I don't know if you keep up with Alexander Dugan. I've actually subscribed to his telegram. So I read quite a bit of his stuff and he writes about this and he's like, yeah, we're trying to, we're trying to stop this beast from moving in, like we're 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 the we're the front to stop this beast of the 21st century coming in and taking over. And so it's very complex what we're dealing with because it's not. It's like I I describe Parag Khanna as the 21st century new Brzezinski. Mm-hmm. That's the way I look at him. Like when I read his stuff, I'm like. This guy is new Brzezinski in the 70s.
0: So I want to pick up on a couple of things that you said. One is that the idea of having them have their own culture, that would make sense because I've always tried to reconcile globalism and multi- multiculturalism. I've never mm-hmm. really understood it. And that makes sense. And it makes me think of like George Soros working for the Nazis in the ghettos. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, like. He's one of us, is you know, <laughs> but he wasn't, right. and you wouldn't know. And I, and that obviously goes back, I'm sure, to the Roman times and before, that kind of a strategy where you have the managers there, and China does it that way. They have their little villages, and the guy runs it, but he's mm-hmm. running it for a very big state. But the 21st century dialectic, I, 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 I totally identified it, but I couldn't really piece together what they were doing, but I felt that they were doing it. That the twentieth century dialectic was, let's say, I don't know if it was communism versus fascism or totalitarianism versus capitalism, but it ended up that that well, dialectic. The, the,
1: the way he he describes it is state based. Like that, but, that's like how he really breaks it down. He's like the twentieth century was state based. Okay, and and that's the way okay. he says it. And I think okay. that might be the easiest way to understand it.
0: Okay, because what ended up when that dialect synthesized was. The social democracy everywhere, basically.
1: Right. Yes. Just, yeah.
0: And now, and so I had looked at the Clash of Civilizations, Samuel Huntington, or Bernard Lewis, whatever, and I and I think even Hillary like referred to it before Trump brought back this communism rhetoric, which mm-hmm. was just a throwback. to one the total distraction, really trying to get our eye off the ball, like what you, you're what you're talking about, like getting us to look back mm-hmm. and think that's the battle we're fighting, which it is not. But I always thought it was – when they were talking about the clash of civilization, that obviously the big battle was like Islam versus the West, which didn't even make sense to me. I'm like, how is that a synthesis? And I said, well, the only synthesis it could really yield is to bring morality and culture, uh, kind of force that, to Mm. like transform government into a a vehicle for forced culture. And that seemed to be – you know, I kind of lost – my conviction that that was what was going on until the COVID thing came and people were, there's a new ethic now. So people wear masks. It's rude not to wear a mask. It's rude not to like, you have to stand six feet away. It's like the whole, all of those rules are about, um, about the virtue signal. It's about the cultural aspect of it. Cause you cannot argue the science with people. They don't want to hear it. That's not what they're saying. Are you vaccinated? Are you not? Are you, uh, a religious person, or are you no. an apostate? The anti-vaxxers right. are, are the apostate. Are apostates.
1: you or not? Yeah. yeah,
0: yeah. And do you believe? Yes. Do you believe yes. in science? Do you believe? Right. And and to me, if that if the control mechanism now has moved to the cultural realm, truly, truly, control of the mind, and it's it's uh, enforced via this social media and stuff that actually taps directly into your mind in a two-way street, like confession. I was saying like we used to go to confession and stuff. Mm-hmm. Confession is nothing compared to a Google search. If somebody knows what you're searching and I've seen that there's, there was a courts article about the NSA saying the guy was in the NSA and he went back and said, uh, they wanted Google because that they could literally make a psychological profile of every single individual and even populate their, their world on the internet with what they think are like minded people, but they might not even be people. It might not even be actual people. It could be something else. But so you have this like, uh, mm. it, it's like individualized cultural control. Mm. And it's just impossible to see a bigger picture like that. It's impossible to see that what you're talking about using our tax dollars to control supply chains. And I'll tell you, it does make me rethink about what what the communist like sincere communist ideologues I know that communism was promoted by capitalists sometimes to control at the top or I don't know what but but it, people who really thought about communism as a reaction to you know hereditary feudal injustice in Europe say like that they were really thinking about communism as a way to to battle that that control by the rich or whatever but that that is what I mean it's fascism now I would say I would just say fascism one which isn't necessarily better
1: well I think alright so this is something I've been trying to kick around in my head I want to I'm going to bounce it off of you because I think I think you've got a good grasp on this stuff and like you could help me like work through this a little bit one of the things um, that Parag Khanna talks about in one of his TED talks is that you have a situation where you have these mega cities. So, right. So, like, instead of looking at the Northeast as separate states, look at, like, Boston, New York, and all these big cities in that area as one big mega city, right? So, he's basically, like, where, where the lights all connect is one one major mega city. And so, he was talking about how how countries would be, like, subsidies of the mega cities. And that the the mayors would basically be running everything. Like yes. the, the entire and so this is something I've been watching. And I didn't see it this year, but I wouldn't be surprised if we see it coming up next year, maybe. But I was looking at the WEF, I was watching to see if I saw mayors listed as guests. Because like that to me is is a big move on, on their part. And it seems It seems like we've moved to it to a a area, and I've kind of this, like I said, this is something I'm kicking around. I just can't quite grasp it, and I just can't quite get it where I can understand it completely. It seems like the government, governments of like countries are subsidies of corporations in the same way he's talking about countries being subsidies of the mega city. And I'm wondering how they're related because he's talking about how the mayors, the, the mega megacities control the supply chains. And so if the corporations and the mega cities are, are come together in cohesion, therefore it is putting like it's dampering the, the power and of of the country and the state and and the governments that basically become subservient to those corporations and that global movement of megacities. So, yeah, am I making sense? Yeah, I understand. Exactly like I said, what I'm, I'm trying to like understand. work this out.
0: It's almost like they're factory towns, and they, But I remember when. Two things happened. I was in Atlanta and I was trying to figure out why they were bringing down, they were these weird like transportation laws and landscaping rules and all that kind of stuff. And I did a show on it. Everybody made fun of me. Like, that is the driest stuff ever. I was like, no, it's really interesting. It's like the UN is taking over Johns Creek. you like, this is crazy. And, uh, Kasim Reed, which nobody even knew he had been, I think, took on the The first, it was like IAEA, maybe it was called. And he was the first city, Atlanta was the first city, and this was completely under the radar. It was not reported as far as I know. I really had to dig for it in investigating something else. And it was where if the city could pay for it, pay for implementing these new rules, that city could be chosen as a leader city. And it Mm. was. So he took Atlanta's tax dollars and decided to use it to implement like these tried to implement greenways and things like that. Mm-hmm. And he was also sitting with Atlanta as like the one of 25 city steering committee for like strong cities, which I think was another UN thing. And it was all those those standards that we call ESG standards for corporations, but these were the town standards. I don't know if this rings a bell to you, but it was these rules where. And I remember I was visiting a friend in Switzerland, and he said, "Oh yeah, like there's UN legislation where they measure the height of your of your hedges and stuff. And because this is Switzerland, your neighbors will come over and cut your hedges if it's not exactly right because they're no just shit. like like that. And I and it, and when Their Trump OCD. pulled yeah, and they and they think that they have a right to that. But when Trump pulled out of the climate accord or something like that, remember the mayors went over his head and the mayors. So I looked into that, and the mayors have an international meeting, and they get together in a foreign country and they get on the same page. And then I realized the governors have an association like that. Sheriff Israel and Parkland in Florida mm-hmm. went to D.C. and
1: was do, a part. Do you know of- why they freaked out about that as much as they did?
0: About the climate thing? Yeah. No, why?
1: Because it wasn't about the climate. It was about ESG. It was about the international banking standards.
0: The banking standards.
1: It was all about banking standards. I'll send you articles on it.
0: Banking standards. Wow, I, I, that's the yep. first I've heard like of that.
1: Every, everything, everything that was going on behind the scenes, like like everything that we were that was pushed out in our face had nothing to do with what they were actually doing. Back behind the scenes, it was all international banks working out ESG metrics.
0: Wow. And and their goal is just to.
1: Well, they're, I, they're, I mean, I mean, you know how ESG works. It's a weaponization of financial institutions to create the conditions to move the public, like like we we're talking about with the, yeah. like the next million years. It's you're creating if you yeah. if you can if you can challenge a person's financial situation to where they can't feed their family, they're going to move the way that you want to want to be moved. Did you hear
0: this? China, the people in China just yesterday, I saw this, were protesting at some banks that have been closed for a while. So Mm -hmm. they were kind of having a run on the banks. Mm -hmm. And the government turned their health pass to red.
1: Oh!
0: All had to go home. Damn it. (laughs) So... I mean, it's happening. And for
1: those that are not aware, the the health pass falls under the S in ESG. Yes, exactly.
0: (laughs) And it was about banking specifically, which is what we're all afraid of. Yeah. It's all about
1: banking. I'll, I'll, I'll send you articles. I was just looking back on it yesterday. I was, uh, talking to one of my listeners about it and we were just like chatting about it and I was sending him articles and he was like, holy shit, I never heard this. I was like, yeah, none of us did because it's what they were doing. You know, it's, it's always what they're doing backhanded, what they're doing like behind the scenes that you don't see out front that makes a difference. And yeah, I, I actually stumbled upon it because I stumbled across a Glenn Beck special where no he's talking way. where he's talking about the Paris climate accords. And he's like, wait a second, look at these banks that were involved in this. What were the banks doing there? What do the banks have to do with anything? And I was like, holy shit.
0: <laughs> maybe I should start listening to him again. He I, got Obama took him out in t- like specifically. Cause maybe you're too young to even remember that. I, I, I remember, remember that. I,
1: I love Obama said, there.
0: There's somebody on Fox News who's got to go. Like, he yeah. literally said that in an interview, and Glenn Beck was gone. They gave him, like, $80 million. And it kind of, like, bums me out because somebody with that kind of reach that was really, really powerful. And then he could take that money and set up, like, a whole kind of sidestream media outlet. And, you know, I don't know how much play he gets. Like, it makes you feel as an alternative He's, media he contributor said that it's as- a little... <laughs> it's a he says road.
1: he says he's the biggest alternative conservative media outlet in the world. I don't know if that's true, that. but um, I know he's been spot on with the Great Reset and with ESG, and like I I, I, I still disagree with him on all kinds of stuff. But <sighs> for information, he's yeah. got a team of researchers that does all this shit twenty four seven. You know, yeah. oh crap, but my I battery's so- getting low.
0: <laughs> oh no. I was disappointed. (laughs) We're about almost at an hour. This time flew, but, um, I was, I disappointed in him because when I went like uh, he organized all the Obama marches and I went to everyone, Obamacare marches and I went to everyone there was, there were three in DC and I went to all of them. I brought people with me and it was all Glenn Beck and I think freedom works. And then when the lockdown started happening and Trump declared an emergency order, that gave license to all the governors to do what they did. I wanted to march on Washington and I try, obviously, I like, not like I had anybody's email address, but I like made public calls at freedom works and uh, Glenn Beck and I was Like, why don't we go? And I got the word back actually, because we're addressing all of this at the local level, go to your state house, go to your courthouse. And I was like, but it's not a local problem. And they're basically, was like, we're not bothering Trump. We're not going to bother Trump, which is how I know that if Hillary had been in, in DC, in the White House, then there would have been more resistance.
1: I've always, I've always had a suspicion that Trump was a uh, was controlled out.
0: Yeah, an inside job for sure.
1: Yeah, it, no doubt. Well, I have my doubts, but at the same time, like, I still have my suspicions. Like,
0: I have no doubt, and I, I feel like that. they they completely channeled all of that Ron Paul energy into out of out of ideology and clear thinking and the american experiment you know our heritage into a european style like you were saying european style identity stuff yeah and i it just really it's that was it that was the end they had to do it from the inside i'm not even saying trump knew there's no reason to tell him
1: yeah yeah i don't yeah no i mean he was surrounded by so many people that I mean I remember whenever um there was the uh, the whole Ukraine phone call
0: yeah, the impeachment
1: yeah do you remember there was uh, I think he was a he was a director of the NIH if I'm not mistaken and um he had said that we had our um we we've had our Ukrainian policy set for decades, and Trump came in and started trying to change things and that was part of the reason they were impeaching him. It was, it was, I think it was, uh, oh, what was the guy's name? Oh God. It was one of the fucking big name guys that were over there. He was in Ukraine. I got Sussman Kent, on the mind and George it wasn't Kent. Sussman. No, it wasn't George Kent. It was, a. Uh, God, I'm going to remember it. Like I mean, after Carrie was there.
0: I'll tell you why that it, it may be true, but, um, I remember when that happened. I said the only reason they could possibly be doing this. So they, this is what happened. He got impeached for interfering with aid we were giving Ukraine that was being used for resisting Russia. I guess you could say. And the whole thing seemed scripted and made up. And I'm not saying Trump like knew what the ultimate goal was, but I said I think what they're doing is getting the left fully on board with giving Ukraine military aid to fight Russia. And if they can associate being anti-Ukraine military aid then with Trump, then all the people with Trump derangement syndrome will just knee-jerk be in favor of giving Ukraine military aid. And And I didn't fold in that it would have to be at the hands of a Democrat, but it did have to be at the hands of a Democrat. And I I might have folded that in at the time. So when it happened that way, which is exactly how it did happen, I have to think that that's what that was all about. Because I I think it was the only possible explanation. I mean, I guess you could say that coincidentally it it served their purposes by Trump happening to be against what they happen to want to provoke. But that seems less likely to me.
1: I I found his name. I'm sorry. That's what I was looking at. Go for it. This is Alexander Vinman?
0: Oh, Vinman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was-
1: he was, was he, when that. he testified. When he testified, yeah. he said, We we we've had a Ukrainian strategy, and Trump was trying to change yeah. it.
0: The Ukrainians, he is Ukrainian. Obviously, his brother's Ukrainian. Victoria Newland, who did the coup, is of Ukrainian descent, and so is her husband, Robert Kagan.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I mean, remember hearing you say this on Pete's show. On,
0: on Pete's show. Yeah. The because he was like, every, you know, everybody's Jewish. I'm like, everybody's Ukrainian Jewish. And yep. there's, uh, and that's that was the whole Kazarian thing. But I feel like, I think it's it, it's weird that they are all of Ukrainian descent. Like I mm. don't, I, I just don't know what is going on there. I don't know what kind of like historical deep state is in Ukraine. But uh, it, I mean, like they I are said, all Ukrainian.
1: I mean, it it it, lo- it looks from what I can tell, it looks like it goes deep. <laughs> yeah. It looks like this is stuff that they were setting up back whenever the Soviet Union was still in operation.
0: Gosh, I was just talking to a guy, I really like a a journalist Jeremy Kuzmarov who wrote, writes for Covert Action magazine. He's actually the managing editor over there, which is mm-hmm. kind of like left-leaning, so I I never even like as soon as I got turned on, to him, I was like, wow, there's like so much good stuff on here and mm-hmm. just I don't care if it's left-leaning or whatever. So I was talking to him. And he said he said that he thought it was possible that even as far back and you're saying even further back as that 2014 coup was knowing full well that it would provoke Russia and that being part of it. Now, that's not what they said, Jeffrey Pyatt and Victoria Newland in their mm. call. But Jeffrey Pyatt did say, we've got to cement this thing before Russia can react yeah, so I, knew I, Russia was going to react.
1: I mean, I, what I'm saying is, I think they've been laying out the the, the framework for decades. I, I don't think this is any of this is new
0: of Ukraine specifically, or yeah. of restoring a Russian-U.S. hostility.
1: No, of Ukraine. I, I, mm-hmm. I think I think they saw the writing. I think <gasps> oh, the because it's so
0: valuable.
1: Well, right. It's so it's valuable. it's the breadbasket. Right. Exactly. And, and I think and it was the last holdout. You got of Kazakhstan. Non-GMO. Yeah, you got Kazakhstan right there. You got all this oil and gas that runs right through there. If you have read um you've read the the grand chessboard by the big new president.
0: Yeah, business. I have most of Okay. So Bruce like
1: he stuff. talks about like if you read what he's writing about Russia, Ukraine, Kazakhstan, all that stuff, what does he focus on? He's not focused on geopolitics. He's focused yeah. on oil and Resources. gas. Yeah. Yeah, it's all about oil and gas. Yeah. And so I think the corruption that yeah. was involved in Ukraine was embedded in intentionally in order for the US politicians to be able to launder money through Ukraine. And
0: oh, yeah, I'll give you that. So I always thought Syria and Ukraine were just about gas pipelines. Now I think <clears> it's <throat> about more. And I absolutely feel like when you see uh, the real dirt on Zelensky, Biden, Kolomoisky, that scary oligarch, mm-hmm. um, Kerry over there, the, uh, Hunter Biden, all of the stuff, all of the extreme corruption there, even including the Tamashenko or whatever, Yanukovych, even including the, the, the guy who, we unfairly did a coup against. He was as corrupt as Russian Putin's. Like I'm giving this guy a safe harbor, but he's totally corrupt. Right. So I would fold in. Also, you're right. Like there's got to be so much backdoor stuff there. And you can, I mean, when I was looking into the Bi- Hunter Biden, they're like Hunter Biden's making fifty thousand dollars a year on uh, Burisma. I'm like fifty thousand dollars a year. He's probably making like a billion. You know, there's probably right. a billion dollars going well, through like, there. That, that- I thought it was
1: like eighty thousand dollars a month or something like that. Maybe it was, it was always- even
0: fifty thousand a month. Like, it was but insane it was (laughs) but the but the but the imf money that was flowing through all the nested organizations so kolomoisky basically owned zelensky and owned burisma and owned privat bank and got like the imf loans to funnel through his like cypriot offshore account never to be seen again to the point where he actually drove the bank that he owned into bankruptcy it got nationalized Oh my gosh. Like it's so much corruption, so much lost money, just a black hole of IMF money. And now that you're saying, obviously that's why they were wanted to get rid of all the prosecutors one after the other. It's mm-hmm. not just one prosecutor's like two or three that just kept saying, look, I can't, I have to reveal some of this stuff. There's some demand in our country for I thought, uh, I, I, action. I, thought all,
1: I thought that was all because they wouldn't let Biden sniff their children's hair.
0: <laughs> that could, they probably would though <laughs> knowing Zelensky it looks like you definitely provide children for hair sniffing so but I but I also think so you you fold in the corruption thing but I also think there is something to the fact that they are the breadbasket, and mm. under Putin they were not allowing genetically modified food and now I think I think I don't know if they're rolling that back I remember when buyer in germany bought monsanto so Mm. in europe gmo used to be illegal Mm -hmm. and and but here we encouraged it and then when i saw monsanto become a european country i was like i'm sure they're going to start doing gmo over there and i think they are but that could be one of the there's an article in that covert action magazine i've got to get to that just came out today about the genetically altered food and the importance of ukraine and that world thing and that's a big thing right now because they're bringing that food crisis down yeah and probably to convert us all to well it's what like 40 food
1: yeah wasn't it like 40 percent of the wheat utilized worldwide is produced in ukraine and russia and then it's something like 60 percent of the fertilizer
0: yeah Yeah, i I thought the numbers are a little i thought it was 25 and 70 but the impact is the same oh it's
1: it's just it's terrible like what they're doing to people like period
0: well so 40 billion dollars of our taxpayer money is going over to ukraine but one of the things that's in that package is food aid for africa Mm -hmm. yeah because they're like oh well because of all this trouble we're sending we have to send food to africa which and africa was last year anyway agricultural exporter
1: well i think they get but but when it comes to wheat production i think they get 60 percent of their wheat from ukraine
0: yeah, I believe that. But they, but uh, but they I think they're going backwards on Africa. China is pulling out of Africa a little bit. Africa was a big food exporter. I don't know how that's going to go now if they can't get their fertilizer. See, that's a big problem is that they use that fertilizer, which is, I think it's like the old school kind of fertilizer. Okay. And we don't like that. We like the right. real hardcore chemical stuff. So this right. will also move towards that. I mean, it almost makes you think just old school, like it's all about. It's all about just global corporations. Like right. they just want well, more I mean, markets for chemicals, more markets for this. Like you, you know, you stop thinking about lizards after a while and you're just like, I think it's what you <laughs> <to> get. <yeah.
1: laughs> I think it's too late to stop the lizard people, man. It's right, <laughs>
0: lizard here. I want my stop messing with my food.
1: Yeah, I got a uh, You got a few more minutes?
0: Yeah, sure, absolutely.
1: Okay. So my wife's from South Africa, so bring it up, Africa. I wanted to I wanna bring this up because I've brought this up to a few other people and they don't know what to make of this. So I want to see what you think about this. Okay. My wife lived in uh when she was still in South Africa, we were trying to decide whether I was gonna move there or she was gonna move here to to the US. And as you see, ultimately we decided she was gonna move here. But I kept saying, well, I could start businesses doing this. I, can, I, I have these skills. I know how to do this. I can do this. And she would continuously tell me, no, that's infrastructure. China owns it. And I was like, interesting. Okay. And so everything I would say I could do, she'd be like, no, China owns that. China owns this. China owns that. That's what China does. They, they're all over here. And I think it's something like 80% of South African infrastructure is built by China. But when my brother-in-law was going into the oil field and he was looking to get a job outside of South Africa in in the oil field, he went to a Western country. He ended up going to New Zealand, but he had his choice between uh, Britain, Australia, New Zealand, and the U.S. He ended up going to New Zealand. It struck me as weird as like, it almost feels like there's some sort of deal there where the U.S. controls the energy sector and China controls the infrastructure sector.
0: I wouldn't be surprised if they do it that way. Like when you read that, I read that recent Rand Corporation document that makes it very clear that they think about where the strengths lie Mm -hmm. and they make sure that they direct people where they want them to be. That doesn't surprise me. I think China's backing off that a little bit. I think they got burned and, They don't want to look the way we all think of the IMF as going in there, giving huge loans for infrastructure projects to these countries that when there's a downturn and there has been for them, they can't repay them. And then the only recourse on those loans is to take possession of like an airport or whatever. That's, that was an actual example. And the IMF doesn't mind doing that at all because they control the world press, but China doesn't like it because they try to still try to act like they're for the little guy. Mm. And the thing, so you're saying, yeah, that, the countries that you named are the five eyes countries, right? Australia, New Zealand, the US, UK, and I guess it would be Canada, but I thought it was South Africa too, but um, that would be six eyes. So I'm not sure <laughs> about that. But the oil, uh, the oil and gas. So I'm going to bounce this right back at you and ask you this question. I started to think that after literally 100 years of trying to completely monopolize and control the world oil supply, um, as let's just call the Western oil interest, the Rockefellers, I don't know mm-hmm. who it really is, but Rockefellers, they, I think, I think under Putin, and I think just over the past two or three years, they have finally concluded that they could not truly monopolize it, that he was always going to be there. Uh, Russia was always going to be a problem, like they always have been in that area, except for when they were kind of really inefficient under the um, communist rule. That 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 may have been the very very long term plan behind focusing on fossil fuels for the climate change agenda. Is that they were like, you know what? We're we can't dominate it. We're going to have to we're going to have to starve the oil producers by changing. The entire underlying structure of the world economy, like I actually i that's kind of like my best working paradigm right now, and I think we're in real change. I think that China and Africa thing is really changing. I did a couple of deep dives on that because we're we've we've orchestrated like ten coups in Africa recently, mm. or I should say the craziest coincidence happened. we went into these ten countries, retrained their armies, and, and before suddenly- we got on the plane (laughs) literally like in every case it was like and as these guys were leaving from the airport they got word that the guys they just were talking to invaded the palace you know we told them not to do it but they just did it they couldn't even wait for us to get on the plane so i was then i started digging into africa i was like are we reasserting ourselves in africa and it kind of looked like we might be but of course our method is to starve them instead of (laughs) build it up Mm -hmm but there could well, be a little bit changing of the guard. But yeah, what do you think about the oil thing and the climate change, I
1: well, well, the oil thing and the climate change is very interesting. Yeah. Uh, have you watched um have you watched James Corbett's documentaries how and why big oil, oil conquered the world?
0: Yes, um, they, and also he, the China he, one on the Rockefellers.
1: He mentions he mentions a guy in there uh who is uh part of the uh, big oil back in the 70s who Clung on to the green movement back in the seventies, and how the oil companies have shaped the green movement ever since the seventies. And so, if you go and you look, and this is this might kind of blow your mind a little bit, but if you go and you look at the CEOs and the and the board of directors of all these big oil companies, Shell, BP, all these guys, you know what they're talking about? They're talking about sustainable development. They're talking about ESG. They're talking about wokeism. They're talking about that's all they're talking about that even in, on the BP, when they talk about how the money that they've earned recently and the increase in prices of oil has given them the resources to change and become a producer of multiple different energy sources instead of just focusing on oil. So these people are not hurt by this at all. They are manufacturing this. They are, they're steering it.
0: That's really interesting. Um, I remember finding out that Phillips Electronics, which is a foreign company, spent wasn't a tremendous amount, maybe $10 million of lobbying money that I could find mm-hmm. getting when Bush signed off on curly light bulbs. Curly mm-hmm. light bulbs was like a federal law, you yeah. know? And yeah. He signed off on that and and it, and it he gave it a 10-year lag time or something crazy like that. So nobody could connect the dots there. But I remember thinking, why would a light bulb company? And of course, it's because they're so much more profitable. Like there's no money in an Edison light bulb. And I've thought that oil and gas, like I'm a big fan of oil, that it's like the source of all, sur- it's quite possibly the source of all surplus wealth. Because think about it. Like if you think back 100 years or whatever, more than that, that this is basically free energy it's not Mm -hmm. tesla level free energy but it's just pools of liquid energy i mean before that you had to like grow food eat it and pull things (laughs) you know like now you get to like get a bowl of oil light it on fire and you know the thing will just pull itself i mean that's pretty awesome. And because it's just, uh, yes, it gets more expensive to have to frack it or dig deeper, but the margin on something as basic as that as a commodity has got to be pretty low. So if you were going to ban it, that makes a lot of sense that you would ban the cheap good thing in favor of something that takes a tremendous amount of capital investment that you are in a position to get the taxpayer to pay for and your competition could never do it and could never enter that field. There cannot be startups when in a highly subsidized industry like solar or Tesla. Well, what do
1: you, what do you, what do you need in order to have, uh, to run solar farms and wind farms that you don't need to drill for oil?
0: Well, public land, that's what you, I'm thinking. You
1: have to own the land. It's but if you've land. got an inside me, track, then you don't. I'm, have time. I'm watching. It. And what's the one resource that's always going up? Is land.
0: Land, yeah.
1: It never Every goes day. down. So it look it it looks to me like it's a big land grab. The whole green movement looks like a land grab from my per- perspective.
0: Wow. Yeah.
1: I mean, that look too. at what look at what BlackRock and Bill Gates have done in the last year. Bill Gates bought 242 thousand acres of farmland. You know, BlackRock's been buying up subdivisions. Like it, it all looks like a huge land grab by 2030, you will own nothing and you will be happy.
0: That's right. There was a, a kid in one of my classes. I, um, uh, I got a JD MBA from Stanford. So I was there for four years. And through those years, I had a lot of different classes, like mm. uh, you know class of 95, class of 96, law school, business school, whatever. Right. And Somebody there had a name that you would recognize, you know, like a, one of my classmates had a name that was basically on a big building downtown. Yeah. And I remember like always thinking, geez, I wonder what he knows. And <laughs> the rest of us were trying to get jobs at banks and law, law firms. And he got a job as a treasurer of a bank. And then, which is like a really not a job you would want. Like that, you just get paid money for that. Like if you're an investment banker, you get bonuses. And if you're a lawyer, you get like big contracts, you know, big um clients. But to be a treasurer at a bank is not a lot of money on it. Like he's obviously trying to learn something about how banks work. And then after that, he joined a like a little financial firm that specialized in agricultural land. And I remember thinking, I am certain there is something to that, and that was a long time ago. And I and now I think that that was absolutely right. Like you just knew that that was.
1: I wonder if he was following the John Perkins path. What is that? You know, read Confessions of an Economic. Oh
0: Economics? yeah, absolutely have. Yeah. But why? <laughs> the, what did John, he say about that?
1: John Perkins was. Uh, what What he did was. What he was saying was what the CIA would do is they would put you in a position to where you had contacts with these foreign governments so that you could build these relationships. And you're trying to bend the foreign governments into to the mold of what the United States wants them to be.
0: Yeah, yeah, maybe. Oh, well, I was just thinking he was trying to accumulate the land, but you might be right. I mean, they he could have been have doing that, too.
1: I, I was just no, but you have a lot of half ass making a joke. But. Yeah,
0: but you do. You do have a lot of influence when you're a big player in those things as far as financing, regulation, how the taxes work. See, that's the thing that people don't realize is that though tax breaks, I almost feel like taxes exist to keep everybody down and tax breaks exist to give your friends privileges mm. so that they have an advantage. You can't um, you can't surmount. So, like, I remember I think the thing that I was looking it's, into it's regulatory Cassini,
1: capture. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And and the barriers to entry and all that. But I I think the thing I was looking into in Atlanta where I discovered that stuff about Cassim Reed was the, the new ballpark in Cobb. So they took the ballpark out of the city and they put it just in the next county over. And I just couldn't figure it out. And I looked into it and it was a huge deal, hundreds of millions of dollars. And it was all came down to... That their entire development, I think, at least the initial proposal, and I think it came down this way, it was like a mall and all this kind of stuff, like places to live, hotels, maybe even apartments, was all, I think, did not have to pay taxes. Mm. And and so the deal looked good, but you didn't realize that it was just this massive transfer from the town to uh, whatever the financial investor was. And I remember the guy, the person, the councilman who did it, he did it like behind closed doors. He was voted out and I just thought, what did they give that guy? Right. What did they give that guy to do that? And But nobody would really know because they don't realize the value of a tax-free piece of land or a tax-free revenue stream. Like the value is like, it's like twice. You could pay twice for your buildings and everything if you don't have to pay taxes on income.
1: Yeah. All right. Well, I think that we've kind of blown everybody's mind.
0: Yeah, that was separation.
1: a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, just I'm not nip. sure if I
0: should have a cocktail or a cup of coffee to like oh, replenish man. my, my a- brain is empty now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But it's just I think it's interesting to try to figure out the big picture, because like I said at the beginning of our conversation, I feel like I'm on the precipice of some moment of clarity. And I and I, I keep leaning towards the moment of clarity is that it really is what you see is what you get. It's really just what it has been for a hundred years or 150 years. It's just powerful people using the power of government to uh, exploit us and our privilege and our property for their own enrichment and to make sure that we don't, we don't compete with them.
1: Right. Yeah, no, for sure. And, but what, what's really difficult and this is what I've found is because I've been researching ESG since 2019 when I sat down to write an article about it the other day in order to make it accessible to the average person it's such a complex web that you're trying to pick out bullet points that you can utilize and say okay let's let's just look at this let's forget about this like and it's one of the things I try to do a lot is like I'll, I'll tell people like yeah yeah yeah. Okay, I get these people are nefarious, but the average person doesn't look at it this way. So let's forget the nefarious intent. Let's just talk about what we can prove. What can we lay out there that people can Google in 2 seconds and pull it up and say, "Oh my god, they're fucking telling the truth." <laughs> you know, and and that's what's really difficult because it's it is hard to to separate the nefarious intent from these things, but at the same time, it's almost beneficial to like step away from from the that kind of ominous, like evil, you know, doer that's yeah. Like, running. Yeah, the world no, get over. your chicken,
0: get your gun, yeah, make sure exactly. they don't encroach on your water rights. You know, go to town hall, keep abreast of the the rules that are coming down about if you right. can keep a chicken and drink your own, you know, pump your own well. And there's probably not much else you can do. That's right, probably exactly. why they they let us all they see it. I, I wait around in that World Economic Forum website quite a bit, and boy, you can just – sometimes I feel like I fall right into the screen.
1: Oh, yeah. You, I mean, you look up, and it's like three hours later.
0: <laughs> yeah, and it's like wow. these wheels upon wheels. Every time you click on something, like <laughs> another wheel shows up. Yeah. I mean, uh, you might as well. They, they're probably – Klaus is probably looking back out of my little camera on my laptop laughing his ass off.
1: Yeah, exactly. It's like, <laughs> all right, like there's only so much I can do here. There's only so much I can do. I'm only one man. But Just that's why I think cup. it's good. But that's why I think it's good that there are so many of us doing things in like little different spectrums mm-hmm. and, and we're kind of focusing in little different areas. And and like I said, what I, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to pull all these pieces together and make it accessible for an average person that doesn't dig into this stuff, you know, on a regular basis. And that would typically look at, you know, a James Corbett or Richard Grove. Like they're totally insane. It's like, okay, like, how can I take what I learned from James Corbett or Richard Grove or Monica Perez and put it into bite-sized pieces that you can accept, accept and, and digest. So that's it. It was great having you on plug, plug, plug.
0: Oh, sure. Yes. So I've done a lot of things. I have a Twitter account. You can reach me at at Monica Perez show for a long time. I was doing the drive time news blast, which is a daily show. My partner's still doing that, Brad. I'm uh, I had to take a little bit of a step back because I have a lot of things going on. Personally, very old mom who I love and want to spend time with but I'm still putting out three shows a week. So I do interviews like this. Hopefully you let me put this on my feed and we'll call Absolutely. it a buddy dive if that's okay. Like a swap sure. cast and I do deep dives. So I take a subject, any particular subject, like the baby formula thing. I completely cracked the code on the baby formula thing. The FDA did it. And, uh, and you can find those, those are deep dives with Monica Perez on your favorite podcasting platform.
1: Yep. Yeah. And yeah, your buddy dives are pretty cool. I just listened to one earlier. It was really. Can great.
0: you? Can I make this a buddy talk?
1: Absolutely.
0: I'll send, you, I'll send
1: you. I'll send you the uh, link. The oh, file. Yeah. yeah, the file. Not the. Excellent. So,
0: Love it. Thank you.
1: Yes, no doubt. We will. Uh, we'll get that all. All that taken care of. But I'm going to stop the recording, and we will say goodbye on the other side.
0: Okay.